But there can be something risky, something vulnerable in making those kinds of recommendations. So a while back, I read a novel, uh, Piranesi, by Susanna Clarke. It's a, a work of fantasy, which is not my preferred genre, but the, the book, for whatever reason, blew me away. So the ending is a bit of a disappointment, but only because the first five-sixths of the book is so great. And so naturally, I raved about this book to uh, people in my life. So my friend, Sean DeMars, you might remember him. He's a pastor in Alabama. He's been here uh, and, and preached at our church before. Sean and I talk books and movies and music, and so I told him, you've got to read this book. And he read it, and he didn't like it. But that was okay, because Sean and I don't really need to be friends. <laughs> he lives in a different state. I can just delete his contact information from my phone. But the problem was I had recommended the book to other people. One of my kids read it, and fortunately, she liked it. She loved it, in fact. And that's good, because otherwise Christmas would be awkward going forward. Seth read it, and he liked it, which is also good, because I enjoy working with him, and our kids are friends. Natalie Glasser read it, and she loved it, which is good. She's been part of the church for a long time. Since the beginning of my time here, it'd be a shame to see her go. Right? There's something about recommending something you love to people you care about that, that's a little bit vulnerable. And so when the Apostle Paul sent his friend Titus to the church at Corinth, he seems to have experienced some godly anxiety. His relationship with that church at Corinth had been rocky. And he was worried about whether the, the Corinthians would live up to the confidence that he had expressed in them. We see in verse 14 of chapter 7, in the passage that Felisa just read for us, that, that the Corinthians did, in fact, rise to the occasion. So we read there in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14, the Apostle Paul says, Whatever boasts I made to him about you, so whatever boasts Paul made to Titus about you, Corinthians, he says, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. That's the, the context for the section of scripture that we come to consider this morning. Paul is reflecting on the results of Titus's visit to the church at Corinth. And we're gonna see that, that while there was no small amount of pain in that interaction, the results in the end made it more than worthwhile. Uh, what I'd like to do is just walk through this passage. It's a, it's a lengthy passage. It's a dense passage. I'd like to pull out what it is the, the Apostle Paul is saying. And then when we get to the very end, I just want to kind of give you four ideas or four observations that I think will help us to apply this uh, to our own lives. So I just want to walk through the passage, try to understand it, and then we will apply it at the end. Uh, along the way, we'll try to figure out why the Apostle Paul was so happy to have made the Corinthians so sad. So, our passage for this morning here in chapter 7, it actually picks up on a thought that the Apostle Paul left off back in chapter 2. So if you remember back in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 12, Paul said this. He said, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So remember the timeline. 
the Apostle Paul began this church in Corinth probably in 51 to 52 AD. So we think he stayed in Corinth for about 18 months. Uh, he left the city and moved on to Ephesus. And from there, he wrote a letter to the church back at Corinth, giving them some instructions. So we don't have this letter. The only way we know about it is that Paul mentions it in another letter that we do have. At some point, after receiving this letter, some people come from Chloe's household, and they report back to Paul that the church at Corinth has descended into conflict and quarreling. It seems that Paul also received a letter from the church at Corinth. So he talks about that letter that they sent to him in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This letter asks him some questions. It pushes back on the contents of his first letter and even seems to be questioning his authority. So Paul writes back to them. This is the second letter Paul's written. That's the letter we studied last year. We call it 1 Corinthians. After writing 1 Corinthians, Paul sends Timothy, his protege, to visit the church on his behalf. And what Timothy discovers is a church in chaos. Uh, Paul has uh, been opposed by some leaders in the church. They are urging the congregation to reject Paul's leadership. And it seems that a significant part of the church has followed them. Timothy brings this report back. Paul decides that he needs to go to Corinth and address this matter immediately. That turns out to be a very difficult visit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, he describes it as a, a painful visit because a large portion of the church was in open rebellion against him. So Paul decides it's better to leave. He'll endure the humiliation of sort of turning and running rather than, than staying and, and blowing things up in the church, causing further conflict. So Paul, he's written two letters. He's made a painful visit. He gets back to Ephesus, and he writes another letter to the church. This is the third letter we know about. This one's also lost to history. And he sends it to the church at Corinth, most likely via Titus, his good friend and another one of his protégés. So this third letter is the one that Paul mentions in verse 8 of our passage. So he says, even if I made you grieve with my letter. So it seems like he's referring to that third letter that he sent to the church at Corinth through Titus, confronting them in their rebellion as sort of a follow-up to his painful visit. So there in uh, this letter, he refers to it as the severe letter because it had an effect on the church. It seems to have caused them great grief. It seems that the, the gist of this letter was that the church needed to repent of its opposition to him and his ministry. They needed to turn their back on these false teachers uh, who had captured their hearts and attentions. So Paul sends this letter via Titus from Ephesus, and he goes to Troas. And he goes there, and he's doing ministry there, and he's expecting that Titus is going to come from Corinth, having delivered his letter, and he's going he's to meet Paul in Troas, and he's going to tell him how it was received. He's anxiously waiting there to hear how the church at Corinth would respond to his letter. So if you've ever sent a difficult email or even a letter to someone that you cared about, and you had to wait for them to respond, you know something of the, the pins and needles that Paul was, was on. Right? Except in that world, you had to wait months and months for a response. So Paul goes to Troas. He's looking for Titus. He wants, to, he wants to know that his friend's okay, but he also wants to know how the church at Corinth is doing. And Titus doesn't show. And so Paul goes on to Macedonia, hoping that perhaps 
Titus would meet him there because of the different, uh, the way that travel was dictated by weather patterns and, and wind then. He, he hoped that he would find Titus in Macedonia. That's where Paul left us in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. It's a bit of a cliffhanger, right? From chapter 2, verse 14, all the way through chapter 7, verse 4, we see Paul goes on a long digression about the nature of true ministry, right? We've been in the middle of this digression for so long, you might have forgotten that it's a digression, right? But, but here this morning, we pick up the storyline again. So chapter 2, verse 13, Paul's like, I was in Macedonia waiting for Titus. I was anxious to know how things went. And now here we are months and months later, and we're going to find out how things actually were received. That's where we pick up in verse 5 of our passage. It says there, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. So Paul comes into Macedonia. He's looking for Titus. His experience is external conflict and internal concern. We read there in verse 6, however, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. So again, we get this beautiful picture, this glimpse into Paul's understanding of God. Right at the outset of this letter, Paul referred to the Lord as the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Here in chapter 7, he sees God as the one who, quote, comforts the downcast. Brothers and sisters, it's good to remember that following Jesus doesn't mean that life will be easy or free from conflict and disappointment and sorrow. Right? That's what the prosperity gospel teachers on TV will tell you, but it's not true. Right? There's no, if you're here and you're experiencing sorrow or difficulty or anxiety or concern, it's not because there's some secret way of, of living the Christian life that you've missed out on. It's not because there's some key that you need to unlock a prosperous and happy life. There's no way that, that you can get things just right and inoculate yourself from troubles and suffering. Because that's not what God promises to his people in this life. It's what he promises to us in eternity. Right? In the world that is to come, God makes all things new. He wipes away every tear. He abolishes sin and suffering. Those things will be true, but, but that's not this life. That's not now. But that doesn't mean that we're without hope. It doesn't mean that we're without resources. God doesn't promise us ease, but he does promise us comfort. He is, in Paul's words here in verse 6, the God who comforts the downcast. Well, how does he do that? Sometimes he does that through his indwelling presence, through a sense of the closeness of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've experienced that, that sense that the Holy Spirit is close to you in a time of trial. Right? You've, been, you've been reminded and convinced of God's love for you and care for you. And that gave you strength to endure a difficult situation. Sometimes God comforts us by, by giving us faith to trust in a particular promise that he makes to us in his word. In Paul's case, he had even been comforted at least once through a vision in the night. You can read about that in Acts 18. He'd been comforted at least once through direct communication by God, sort of explaining the meaning of his suffering. We'll read about that, hopefully, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But significantly, what we see here is that God oftentimes comforts us 
through our brothers and sisters. Right? That's the form that God's comfort took for Paul in this particular situation. What brought him peace of mind was the arrival of his friend, Titus. You see that there in verse 6. God comforted us. How? By the coming of Titus. So friend, if you're struggling this morning, I wonder if you're looking to the God who comforts those who are downcast. And I wonder particularly if you realize that God's comfort might come to you in the form of a brother or sister in the church family. One of the ways that God communicates his love and care for us is, is through the love and care of other Christians. God puts his love for us in the hearts of his people so that when they love us, when they comfort us, we are experiencing his love. That means we should seek earnestly to to be a source of comfort uh, to our brothers and sisters through our friendship, through service, through counsel. And it also means that we should learn to identify and appreciate God's comfort when it comes to us in in the guise through the presence of other Christians. But it wasn't just the presence of his friend that brought Paul such comfort. The other seemingly greater source of joy and comfort is that the Corinthians, the news that the Corinthians had responded well to Paul's severe letter. You see that there in verse 13. Paul says, therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit had been refreshed by you all. So Titus goes to the Corinthians. His spirit is refreshed by them. He returns to Paul, brimming over with joy. Paul sees Titus' great joy. He sees the affection that the Corinthians showed to him there at the beginning of verse 15, and he rejoiced. Right? What a great picture of the way that, that joy and comfort and grace are contagious. Right? Remember back in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul warned the church that, that sin is contagious, Right? It's like a bit of leaven that spreads through a whole lump. It, it has a way of infecting everything quickly. Well, well, here you get the sense that just the opposite is true as well. The Corinthians comforted and refreshed Titus. Titus, in return, comforts and refreshes Paul and his ministry team. Right? You have this sense that grace and kindness and love are, are spreading. But it wasn't just Titus's joy. It wasn't just his love. It was the report that he brought back of the Corinthian response to Paul's letter. So you read about that at the the second half of verse 7. Speaking of Titus, it says, He told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Titus brings back a report of three things. He tells Paul about the Corinthians' longing. That word that Paul uses there has the sense of deep desire. It's the same word Paul used back in chapter 5 of this letter to describe his his passionate desire to put on his heavenly dwelling. It seems here that the the longing that that Titus talks about is the the Corinthian church's desire to be reconciled to Paul. The second thing Titus tells him about is their mourning. It seems that the, the church had come to grips with ways that they had wronged the apostle. And so when it boiled down to it, they were... They were deeply sorry that all of this had happened. Thirdly, they were marked by, by zeal or enthusiastic concern for Paul. The apostle had been trying to get through to this church for years with letters and visits and, and messengers. 
And only now, it seems, did they get it. Only now were they ready to give focused attention to the issues that Paul's been raising with them. Right? Only now are they zealous for the same things that Paul is zealous for. Right? And this posture is reflected in the way they received Titus. There in verse 15, we see Titus reflected to Paul on the Corinthians' obedience, that they received him with fear and trembling. Right? You see the logic. If Paul is an apostle, right, an apostle of the Lord Jesus, sent by the will of God, as he tells us in 2 Corinthians 1.1. Right? So Paul is sent by Jesus. And Paul sends Titus to the church at Corinth as his go-between. Then when the Corinthians receive Titus, they're really receiving Paul, which is really receiving Jesus himself, which in the end is all that Paul cares about. So you can see why Paul is so happy. This church at Corinth, they are one of his problem children. Right? They caused him sleepless nights. But now Titus brings back this report that finally, it seems like they've turned Finally, it seems like they're, they're on the same page with him. Now, Paul's joy here might seem strange. It might even seem cruel. Who would be made happy to hear about the mourning of others? Who would rejoice at a report of fear and trembling? Well, you see there in verse 8, Paul gives us a little sort of sorry, not sorry. Right? He, he writes there, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. Right? Paul, Paul has a sense of regret for this severe letter because it made them sad, and he, he genuinely loved them. But their grief was only for a little while. The end was positive. You see, Paul had only one aim in writing this confrontational letter. There's only one thing that ultimately mattered to him. So he says there in verse 12, he says, So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. So Paul didn't write his severe letter primarily for the sake of the person who did the wrong. This is probably the person who led the rebellion against him. Right? Remember back in chapter 2, the apostle told the church to forgive that person? He didn't even primarily write his severe letter for the sake of the person who had been wronged. Right? He's talking about himself there. What he was really aiming at, he says, is a revelation of the Corinthians' earnestness. Right? That word that's translated re revelation or, or reveal or, or manifest, it's an important one in 2 Corinthians. So back in chapter 4, Paul talked about the way that his ministry manifested the, the life of Jesus. It's the same word that he uses here. In 2 Corinthians 5, uh, Paul says that he and his ministry team, what they are is known or, or manifested to God. It's the same word that he uses here. In chapter 11, Paul will use this a word again to, to say that his knowledge is made plain to the church. And so here in chapter 7, Paul says he wrote this letter, which might have seemed unnecessarily harsh and confrontational, but his purpose was that something would be manifested or, or uncovered or revealed or made known. Namely, he wanted their earnestness to be made obvious, their, their earnestness particularly for him. Paul writes this letter in order to force a crisis because he was confident that, that deep down at bottom, they were devoted to him. And so it is worth noting that there are worse things than making people sad. 
right? Paul's primary concern for the church at Corinth is not that they feel good about themselves. He's not ultimately worried about their self-esteem. He's not concerned to make sure that everyone feels like their opinion is equally valid. Rather, his concern is for their long-term spiritual welfare. And so this severe letter, he says, was aimed at basically making them come to their senses. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world that, that tends to think of people as fragile. And so we see the kind of confrontation that Paul engages in here as a sort of act of psychological violence, right? To, to call people out, to confront them on the things that they're doing that's wrong. But we see here that Paul would rather make them sad in the short run if that's what's required to secure their long-term spiritual welfare. And friends, I think that's real love. Right? This whole incident, this whole matter, it cost Paul terribly. Right? He shed tears. It chewed up his time and energy for months and years. It would have been much easier for him simply to keep his own counsel, simply to remain silent and not stir up conflict with Corinth. But we see here that he loved the church too much to do that. The old saying is that hard words make soft hearts and soft words make hard hearts. And so parents, there are worse things than making your child sad. Married people, there are worse things than making your spouse sad. Christian, there are worse things than making your friend sad. Turns out that it's a terrible thing. It is an unloving thing to allow someone to continue on a, a spiritually disastrous path just because you don't have the stomach to, to cause them any pain, just because you don't want to be the source of any relational distress. Paul summarizes the matter there in verse 9. He says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you are grieved, Right? He's, not a, he's not a sadist. He's not a lunatic who just enjoys making people upset. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Right? Paul's joy comes not from the fact that the Corinthians were sad, but because their grief was productive. It, it produced repentance. They were grieved into repenting. Their sorrow, Paul says, was a godly grief. Literally, their, their grief was according to God. That is to say, it was consistent with God's purposes. It was according to his will. Right, that phrase, godly, or according to God, is significant. You see it again in verse 10. You see it in verse 11. But friends, this is what we're aiming at when necessary. If we need to confront people, if we need to rebuke or correct or call to account, then this is the goal. Not revenge, not inflicting pain for pain's sake, not, not out to hurt people and make them feel the way they've made us feel. No, like the Apostle Paul, our goal is God's agenda in their lives. That whatever grief they might experience, that it would be according to God, according to his will, according to his ways for his purposes. So from that point on in the passage, Paul launches into a comparison between this godly grief and what he calls worldly grief. Look there in verse 10. 
He says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So there are at least two ways that we can think about grief. There's grief according to God, sorrow that is motivated by love for God that ultimately results in repentance. And there's what Paul calls worldly grief. And you see that the end, the result of these two kinds of grief couldn't be more different. There at the end of verse 9, godly grief meant that the Corinthians, he says, suffered no loss. Right? Paul's letter could have hardened them in their rebellion. It could have further damaged their relationship and confirmed them in their opposition to him. It could have cost them any, everything. But the, the godly grief that they experienced produced in them a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Right? They, were, they responded well. They responded appropriately to Paul's letter. Whereas there's a kind of grief, a worldly grief, that Paul says produces death. He doesn't say exactly what he means by death there, but it seems to be the opposite of salvation, right, that he talks about in verse 10. It seems that Paul's talking about spiritual death, right, that there is a, a kind of grief, a kind of repentance that, that isn't the kind that takes hold of eternal life, that is ultimately spiritually insufficient. And notice Paul doesn't actually tell us much of anything about this worldly grief, Right, as I read through this passage, that's the very first question I have. Paul, tell me more about the worldly grief. Right, I want to know about the bad stuff. Like what, what kind of grief, what kind of repentance is it that, that leads to death? What does that look like? That's not what Paul seems to be concerned with here. Instead, what we get in verse 11 is a rapid-fire list of seven things that are produced in the Corinthians by their godly grief. It says there in verse 11, for see... What earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. It doesn't necessarily come across in our English translations, but the, the way that Paul sort of ties this list together, the way he uses conjunctions here, it, it gives the sense of escalation or ascension. Right? It's like he's building a tower of ideas where each thing kind of comes after the other and intensifies it. And so let's look at this, at this list of seven things that Paul mentions. He says, first, uh, godly grief produced in them earnestness. Right? The, the, the sense is that there's, there's haste, there's urgency, there's diligence for the task at hand. The, the Corinthian response to Paul's letter was characterized by eager devotion to the apostle. What's more, he says, this godly grief produced an eagerness to clear yourselves. The Greek word there is apologia, right? Apology. We use the word apologetics. It has the sense of making a defense for yourself in the courts, right? The idea is not that the Corinthians were defensive, but rather they were anxious to make things right. The third product, Paul says, is indignation, right? Most likely, What's in mind here is the church's outrage at the way that Paul had been treated by the leader of the rebellion. We'll see later on in 2 Corinthians, it seemed that, that this individual had publicly humiliated Paul. And so the church responds now with indignation. The fourth item on the list is fear. That word can have a lot of meanings. We've seen it used in 2 Corinthians to describe a, a good and godly fear of the Lord. Here it seems to have 
the, the sense of being deeply sobered by a situation. Right? The church is paying attention now. They, they are alarmed by what's taking place. Uh, the fifth and sixth things that godly gr- grief produces are, are longing and zeal. We already saw these back in verse 7. The idea is the church is now passionately dedicated to being reconciled with the apostle. And the final idea there, the seventh thing in the list, is punishment. Right? The word there can be justice or retaliation. Right? They, were, they were willing to pass judgment on the person who had led the rebellion. Paul summarizes the matter there at the end of verse 11. At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. There's been a clear shift in the posture of the church. Their grief was not temporary. It was not for show. It was not qualified. Their repentance wasn't conditional. They were sorrowful. They were emotionally engaged. They took action to make that clear. And so that's Paul's understanding of what's happened to the church at Corinth. He rejoiced at the news that Titus brought because his severe letter made the church sad. And that godly grief produced life-giving repentance in the church. So the the most important question, it seems to me, then, is what does that look like for us? What should that look like for us as a church? If we want to be characterized by godly grief that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation, what does that look like for us? What does that look like for us as individuals? We're not in the same situation as the church at Corinth. But Paul does seem to be speaking in broader categories here. He doesn't seem to limit his instruction here specifically to the the situation in Corinth. He says that there is a, a category of grief Godly grief, and it leads to repentance, and that leads to salvation. Right? That seems to be an idea that is true quite apart from the, the application of the situation to the Corinthians. He says there's also a kind of worldly grief that, that leads to death. Those categories apply in a specific way to the church at Corinth, but we could expect that they apply to our own lives as well. And so we need to ask how we can know whether our lives are are marked by the kind of godly grief that leads to salvation or by a a counterfeit grief, a, a worldly grief, a grief that might fool us into thinking that we've really genuinely repented, but but in the end turns out to be spiritually ruinous. And so that's what I want to think about with the rest of the time that we have this morning. I'd like to give you four ideas that I think we need to have in place if we're going to think well about what Paul's talking about here. Four ideas. The first is that we all need to be brought to repentance. So I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but it is foundational. The story of the Bible begins with a creation of the world by a loving and beautiful God. The very next thing that happens is that human beings break with their God. And as a result, the world is fractured. You don't need me to prove that to you. It's everywhere around us. This world is a broken place. But the problem isn't just out there. We're not innocent victims of our environment. No, it turns out the problem is in each one of us. Each and every one of us has has made the world worse. 
Right? We are angry. We are selfish. We are lustful. We are lazy. We can't help but hurt people, even the people we love. Right? We have schemed in our hearts. We've been unfaithful to our promises. We've been deceitful with our words. Right? To be clear, we're not all, all bad. We're certainly not as bad as we could be. In God's kindness, we still reflect many of his wonderful qualities. But we're not right with him. All of us are on the wrong path. Right? We, we can't be reconciled to God so long as we hold on tightly to our sin and rebellion against him. So long as our lives are, are characterized by self-will. And so if you want to understand the Bible at all, if you want to understand the world that God has made at all, then, then you have to come to grips with the fact that something is terribly wrong and that we are wrong and that we have a problem with God that we need what the Bible calls repentance. We need to change. For the Corinthians, this rebellion against God took many forms, this need for repentance, sexual immorality, divisiveness, litigiousness, drunkenness, Right In our passage for this morning, siding with opponents of the gospel. And so our first step towards healing, our first step towards resolution, is what the Bible calls repentance. Uh, the word has a sense of turning. Right, You were heading in one direction, away from God, towards sin and death. Now repentance is turning and going in the other direction. Right, This word has a sense of change. Your mind was set one way, this seemed right, this seemed good, and now you see the error of your ways. Now you think differently, now you love differently. Right? You can see why repentance is essential. Right? You can't resolve anything until you acknowledge that there's a problem. You can't reconcile with God until you stop fighting against him. So that's the first idea. We, we all need repentance. Uh, the second idea is because that's true, guilt and sorrow are good. I think we have a, a strange relationship with guilt nowadays. On one hand, we have become experts at assigning blame. Right? We look at the world around us. We see that it's messed up. We see poverty. We see racial tension, environmental crises, a growing gap between the haves and the have-nots. And we look and we assign, we assign blame. Racism, sexism, colonialism, capitalism, socialism, religion, the sexual revolution. Right? Depending on your point of view, we've all got a place that we look to and we assign the guilt. We look at the ways that we're messed up personally. Anxious, addicted, angry, fearful, in debt, fragile, adrift. And we assign blame. It's our parents, it's our genetics, it's our society, it's our environment, it's ourselves. Right, in one sense, we're really good at assigning blame, at figuring out who should feel guilty for what. But in another real sense, we don't, we don't feel nearly enough guilt. Right, things that used to be shameful, things that used to come with a, a social stigma and a heap of guilt, they're now largely embraced and accepted as normal. Right? Pornography consumption, all sorts of perversion, drug use, divorce, even the, the sexualization of young people in the media, all of those things would have been in some way or another shameful 30 years ago, but now are, are celebrated. 
But there's something in us that naturally recognizes what the Bible teaches. That is, in light of the world that we live in, in light of what's true about our souls, guilt is appropriate. There is blame to be assigned. That feeling that we have of falling short, of, of being ashamed, of having done things we shouldn't have done, of having wasted time and hurt people and failed to love and, and to be who we should have been. There's something to that. That's not an inherently toxic emotion. Paul tells us, in fact, that grief can be productive, that we shouldn't instinctively reject guilt as unhealthy. Our guilt can actually help us because we actually have all done things to feel guilty about. We all have things that we should regret, things that should grieve us. So third idea, our motivation matters. Not all grief and guilt is healthy and not all of it is the same. This is what the Apostle Paul seems to mean when, he, when he's talking to the church at Corinth and he rejoices because their grief, he says, was according to God and not according to the world. He saw that their grief was the spiritually productive kind, that it actually led to repentance and life. He doesn't give us a detailed description between the, the two there in verse 10, but I think we can figure out pretty closely what he means. Worldly grief, it seems, is a, is a guilt a shame, a sorrow that has its roots in worldly or ungodly motivations and emotions. So you might feel deep sorrow for something that you've done because you were caught or because behaviors and attitudes that you wanted to keep hidden have now been exposed. Because you or other people are now experiencing negative consequences of your actions. You might even feel guilt because you failed to meet your own high standards. But you can see how all of those things are essentially selfish motivations. Your sorrow is rooted in what it's cost you. Loss of reputation, prestige, wealth, status, relationship. Presumably, if you could get away with that behavior without being caught, without hurting anyone, you'd be happy to keep going that kind of sorrow isn't really sorrow. You're not really sorry for the thing that you've done. You're only sorry for what it's cost you. Paul tells us that kind of grief that's rooted in our reputation, in our, in our selfish interests, it leads to death. But Paul tells us that genuine godly grief leads to, to true repentance. It has its roots not primarily in the consequences of our sin, but in the fundamental wrongness of it, in the, in the fact that we have committed an offense against God. Godly grief is grief that takes seriously what God has called us to, what God's word says about love and honesty and purity and integrity and kindness and gentleness and creativity. And we see how far short we have fallen of that standard. Right? Whether that's some specific present action or something that we've done in the past, or even just the larger pattern of our life. But we see the, the discrepancy between what, what God has made us to be and how we actually are, and we feel regret, and we feel grief. Sorrow that is according to God is not primarily concerned with self and reputation, with what others will think and how they'll judge us. Godly sorrow is concerned with God with his honor, with his purposes, with his desires. And so when we see how far we've 
fallen short of that goal, we feel grief. That true remorse drives us away from our sin. It makes our sin repellent to us. We begin to hate it. We begin to commit ourselves to fighting against it like the Corinthians did, right? You see their zeal, their, their anxiety, their concern to, to be done with this sin and to be reconciled with the apostle. Look, friends, I think some of us are being held hostage by guilt. How many marriages are on life support because one or both of the parties are unwilling or unable to look honestly at what has happened, to look honestly at what hasn't happened, to look honestly at who they've been and who they've failed to be and really feel deep, genuine, godly sorrow. Right? We can't feel that because we won't let ourselves feel badly for long enough to say, I am sorry. Please forgive me. To God, and to our spouse from the bottom of our hearts. Right? How many of us are trapped in patterns of compulsive, shameful sin because we would rather maintain our reputation than actually come clean? Because we'd rather people think well of us than, ha than have to acknowledge what's true of us. Friends, guilt, if it's Godward guilt, is useful. It's concerned with his glory his ways, his reputation, rather than our own. Fourth and final idea. Guilt isn't meant to be permanent. I think one of the things that keeps us from experiencing godly grief that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation, is that when it boils down to it, we don't have hope. We don't see a solution. And so if I acknowledge the truth about me, if I come clean to my spouse, if I, if I acknowledge what I've done, right? if I own the fact that I'm angry and selfish and perverted and greedy and proud, where do I go from there? Who am I at that point? What, what do I do with this massive burden of guilt? And so we embark on these projects of self-atonement. We harm ourselves as a way of showing, look, I know I'm not good. We medicate ourselves with alcohol, food, drugs, fitness, porn, TV, right? Anything that will distract me from the crippling sense that I've messed everything up and I don't know how to fix it. We decide to clean up our lives, eat organic food, recycle, offset my carbon footprint, become an anti-racist, right? A way of walking the straight and narrow, right? No more harm from here on out. We become religious. We find a set of rules that we can keep, and that will make everything okay. Now I know I'm doing it right. I'm going I'm to homeschool my kids. I'm going to order my home and my marriage along biblical principles. I'm going to give money and time. I'm going to show up every week. Right, look, some of those things might be good. But we discover that if we're really paying attention, none of them wipe away our guilt. They can't do anything about the stain that we, that we see. They can't do anything about the weight that we feel. You see, guilt can't save you. On its own, it's not redemptive. But if your Godward grief 
if your, if your sense of falling short drives you to a place where you despair of fixing it on your own, where you realize you're not the solution, you're the problem, well, it can lead you to long for a different way of living. And at that point, you're ready to hear the message of the gospel. Because when we see our sin for what it really is, when we understand that we cannot fix it, right? when that Godward grief overwhelms us, it turns out that we're on the doorstep of salvation. Because Paul says that kind of grief leads to repentance, a turn of life that leads to salvation. Because God's plan, his desire for you is not that you spend your life overwhelmed by grief and sorrow. Rather, God's plan is that you, you should allow him to take that burden off you. You see, in his great love, God sent his son to do away with our sin and shame by bearing it himself on the cross. As he hung on the cross, Jesus took all of our sin on himself. Every evil thought, every evil deed, every mistake, every misstep, everything that you might desperately want to hide and deny about yourself, even things you don't know well enough to feel shame over. As Jesus died on the cross, God the Father placed on him the guilt that we ought to bear. Jesus died under the power and under the penalty of sin, and he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. And so he has made an end of guilt for anyone who will repent and turn to him in faith. If you'll let go of sin, if you'll turn from the path that you're on and, and embrace Jesus in faith and follow after him, God says there is complete forgiveness. There is now no condemnation. There is no guilt, no burden. Not because we've suddenly become so good, but because Jesus is so good. And so friends, as we come to the Lord's table now, this is God's solution to our guilt problem. Not, not a plan for you to improve your life. Not seven steps to, to moral rectitude. No, God's plan, his solution to your guilt problem is the broken body and the shed blood of his son. So if you've never repented and put your trust in Jesus, then friend, won't you do so now? What is your plan to deal with your guilt? You can be free this very day if only you will let your grief and your guilt drive you to Jesus. I'd encourage you, if you have questions, do you talk to someone about that. Don't let it linger. You can talk to anyone that you've seen up here this morning. You could talk to me after the service. We'd be delighted to tell you more. And if you're a Christian, but if there's sin in your life that you're holding on to, then what you need this morning is to really wrestle with the meaning of the body and the blood. Right? If there is no way for you to be forgiven, then you need to hide your sin. You better figure something out. But if this is true, if Jesus died and he rose again, then you don't bear your guilt anymore. And that means you're free to drag your sin out into the light, to be honest about your life. Again, I'd encourage you, if, if that's where you are this morning, talk to someone. 
You can talk to me after the service. Talk to a Christian friend that you trust. Talk to one of the elders of the church. We would be delighted to help you, right? Not to run from that grief, but to, to experience grief according to God so that you might repent. And if you're a Christian, but you live under a never-ending cloud of guilt and shame, if you try and you work and you only ever feel more and more condemned, then what you need is also here at this table. Because you really need to trust that Jesus took all of your guilt and all of your shame. Not 95% of it, but every bit. He really and truly did away with those things that you're trying to hold on to. Right? The, the great joy of our salvation is that there is a solution to our guilt problem. And so if your godly grief has led you to repentance, then come to the table and enjoy the salvation that God has given to us in Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your great love. We acknowledge that we have fallen so far short of, of your standard. But even saying that, Father, makes us sound almost like innocent victims. Father, we've done more than fall short. We have actively defied you. We have worshipped ourselves. We have done what we know is wrong. And so, Father, we would be overwhelmed with grief and guilt. But we look to the cross. We see your love for us in the gift of your Son. We see the Lord Jesus on the cross bearing all of our sin and shame. And we are, we are driven to him in faith and repentance. Holy Spirit, would you help us to be a, a church family, to be individual Christians who are marked by repentance? Would you help us to experience grief over our sin in ways that are, are godly and productive? Would you help us to love the Lord Jesus in his ways more than we love our own reputation? And we ask these things in his name. Amen.